Let's open our Bibles to the book of First Peter, the first epistle general of Peter. First Peter chapter one, beginning with verse one. We just want to teach tonight tonight a portion of this scripture, and we'll take it verse by verse, and I want to show you some things as we go along. First of all, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you notice, it starts out with Simon Peter. He's the author of this epistle. And he was uh, really uh, named Cephas, or, or Peter, by the Lord. His previous name was Simon. And so Jesus called him Peter, or Cephas. He says that it's a little rock. And he speaks of himself as a rock. In other words, Christ uh, speaks of of Peter as a firm foundation, in a sense. He's like a rock of foundation. Now, Jesus is the large rock, the big rock. But uh, Peter is a, is a rock. And he's strong and firm. But Peter addresses himself and then says his office is an apostle. Now, notice he doesn't say, I'm chiefest of the apostles, or I'm the pope, or I'm ahead of the apostles, but an apostle. He's on the same level and equal with all the other apostles. He doesn't consider himself to be above them. Uh, we know Peter, James, and John, all three, there were three kind of choice people that went close to Jesus and went with him in uh, several instances separately from the others. Remember, Peter, James, and John went with him in the garden. Peter, James, and John went on the high mountain to park uh, where Jesus was transfigured before them. And sometimes Jesus would take with him Peter, James, and John in the innermost uh, chambers of uh, healing or wherever he went in certain instances. But Peter does not consider himself one bit above any of the other apostles. And he announces his office and says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says the message is to the strangers. Look at that. The strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And when he says the strangers, these are believers not only of the Jews that were dispersed, but of the Jews and Gentiles as well. I believe it embraces the Gentile believers as well as the Jewish believers. Now, we know that the Jews were scattered abroad in those early days uh, uh, and were uh, scattered abroad throughout various countries. In fact, if you remember... In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, many of these nations were represented there. Remember on the day of Pentecost, you, if you turn back to Acts chapter uh, 2, you'll find that it mentions Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, and in other places, Bithynia and, and uh, Galatia. And these were people of all these areas though they may go under somewhat different names, but you do have the duplication of the names Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. And, of course, when uh, Paul is preaching in Acts uh, 16, verse 7, he says, They were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into the Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. So Bithynia is mentioned there. And I suppose this, the reason the Holy Spirit didn't permit Paul to go at that time is because this place was already, in a sense, evangelized, or had maybe been there before, but whatever. These are the ones that are mentioned in First Peter. Uh, if you have First Peter, now hold your place where we're studying always. Don't 
uh, pass that up because when we refer back immediately in our thoughts, well, you have to pick it up there or you'll miss the point. So these, these uh, people evidently were represented, all these various nations and others too, were represented, by the way, there were about 16 different nations, different areas represented on the day of Pentecost that were preached to. And he only names a few of them here, but evidently those people that believed and were converted on the day of Pentecost had gone back to these various places, and therefore these strangers were scattered abroad, see, in these places. So look how much effect the early preaching of the gospel had had. Beginning from the day of Pentecost, uh, and this is written, First Peter, about 60 A.D., within a period of, what, 20, 25 years, all of this had taken place and how much evangelization had taken place in such short period of time. So it was really being done what Jesus professed or, or uh, predicted and, and commissioned to be done, wasn't it? It was already being carried out. Uh, let me give you a reference in the book of Acts, if you will when he's talking about the early believers and how they were scattered. In the 8th chapter, when Saul was, uh, had first, uh, of course, persecuted the church, let's begin reading from uh, in chapter 8 of Acts and verse uh, 3 and 4. As for Saul, look at this. He made havoc of the church. This was a Jerusalem church, the church at Jerusalem. He made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, uh, committed them to prison. Therefore, now here's what I wanted to get at. Therefore, they were scattered abroad. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Went everywhere preaching the word. Let me see if I can find it in uh, the uh, earlier chapters. It says, uh, let's see if I can find it where it says they were scattered abroad. Now, that was from that persecution. But anyway, it speaks of all of them being scattered abroad except the apostles. But I don't find that scripture. But here, that's enough to show you that they were scattered abroad and that through the persecution of the church in the early days that, that people got on fire, you might say, and they got out of their home base and they went out and they taught and they preached the word because of the persecution that was coming. All right, back in First Peter chapter 1. He says... In verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the elect of God, the chosen, the redeemed, the ones that God foreknew that are included in the thought of whosoever will. You know, the invitation goes out that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, he said... And John 3.16, that God so loved the world that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the invitation that goes out, that according to God's foreknowledge, he knows these things. And it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, and uh, it says, Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood, sanctification of the Spirit has to do of setting us apart through Christ's death and uh, by His regenerating power because we've obeyed the gospel and the sprinkling of the blood is the application of the blood of Christ to us for pardon and for cleansing. 
So you have a whole uh, great number of themes and subjects brought together here from God to us to the, the uh, method of, and means of our salvation and to the acceptance of it by faith in Jesus Christ. Regeneration is brought into the picture as well. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So the elect are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Let me give you some uh, references in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Look at Ephesians 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now look at verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Chosen. We were chosen in him, in Christ, and we were chosen before the foundation of the world. So, that's the, as God has predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. And that's what he's talking about. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. So we're chosen in him that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Look at all those facts that are involved here. God's choice, God's foreknowledge, but our acceptance. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, but we had to accept Christ in order to apply personally and individually this sprinkling of the blood or the blood of the Passover of, of the Lamb of God for our salvation, whereby we receive pardon and cleansing. That's what Peter's telling us. He's telling us God foreknew it and God chose us, but in due time we accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we were pardoned through that sanctification. Look, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, we obey, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's in our text. So you apply, when it says sprinkling of the blood, it, it goes back and, and applies as if you were taking the Passover lamb in the Old Testament. They, they would take the lamb that was slain, remember on the deliverance at Passover time? The very first Passover we'll refer to it. It's what we want to refer to. If they went out, they killed the lamb, they put the blood in the basin, they took hyssop and dipped it into the basin where the blood was uh, there of that lamb. And they took and this hyssop, which is a kind of a weed thing that would, a lot of, like a sponge, would absorb the blood, and they would sprinkle it on the, the lintel and the side posts of the entrance of the, of the doors of the houses. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. I will not suffer the de death angel to come in and kill the firstborn of that house. And so, we're saved through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ unto ourselves. We have applied that hyssop represents faith. And by faith, we have applied the blood of Christ, the blood of the true Lamb of God, to our houses, to our own uh, persons, for our security and safety and salvation and cleansing as well, just as they applied it for their safety in the Old Testament. And then, no wonder uh, Peter says, grace be unto you, or grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. They didn't deserve that sprinkling, did they? Neither did we. But God in grace provided for their salvation. Remember, the death threat was upon all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, not of the land, but in the land, and, and the Israelites were in the land as well. 
And so all those in the land were under the threat of the death of the firstborn of that house. And the only way they could be delivered, now listen carefully, was through that sprinkling of the blood upon the lintel and the side posts of the house. And if you get the picture, every firstborn in that house was safe because of that blood out there. He was pardoned, forgiven, cleansed, protected, safe and secure from the judgment that was about to pass through the land of the death of the firstborn. You know, there's a wonderful story in that. You know what it is? You picture those Israelites back there in that day. The father goes out and he sprinkles the blood and here's the firstborn son. He might be 10 years old, he might be 12, he might be 16, he might be a grown man, but he's in that house. He might be just a little boy, a wee little boy. And he's wondering if the death angel, he already knows that God said the judgment is coming and the firstborn is going to smite, uh, uh, be smitten of every household unless the blood is applied. And this firstborn in that house is going to say, well, am I protected? Am I safe? Will that blood be for my safety? Now, if he believed what God said, he could rest safe and secure and say, Father, I know you... Put the blood out there and I'm, I'm safe and secure. But suppose he was uh, doubtful. Suppose he feared and says, Father, do you, are you sure that, that, that the, the death angel is not going to get me just because of the blood applied? He was secure, not because of his feelings or his emotions or how good he was or how bad he was or, or whether he doubted or whether he felt secure that it, that would do it. He was secure because that had been put there for his protection. Now, sometimes a Christian, a child of God, will have doubts and fears and, and frustrations and anxieties about his soul's salvation. There's only one question needs to be asked. Has the blood of the Lamb been applied? And if that blood of the Lamb has been applied, you may be as feeling secure as you can and enjoy it, or you may be feeling as doubtful and anxious and wondering and fretting about it, but you're still secure because your security is not based upon your feelings. It's based upon the blood that's, shed, that's sprinkled there. The, the ones that are sure for heaven are those under the blood of Christ. We may go through this life in various emotional stages. You know, there's a lot of people that cannot enter into the security of the believer as others. Some people can feel very secure that, that I've sprinkled the blood, that it's been applied, that I trust in the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, and there will no harm come. Some can rest so uh, secure in that that they can go through life and not worry about it. And others say, well, have I really done it right? Have, and they have questions and doubts and fears. But the main thing, have you by faith, the hyssop represents faith, sprinkled the blood, on your own heart's door and said, I'm trusting in nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so there's your protection. And there's your cleansing. All right, let's go and look at this. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at this. God is to be blessed for providing His mercy for us and for that we are begotten again. In other words, we're born again, we're regenerated, and we have a living hope 
because Christ has been resurrected from the dead. See that? The resurrection of Christ from the dead. His death was for our sins, but his resurrection was for our life, our renewed life. And he's begotten us again unto a living or lively hope. In other words, he's raised us up to be with him. The Bible says he's raised us up to sit in heavenly places, raised us up together to sit in heavenly places with Christ in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 along in there. You have, well, I believe it's Ephesians 1 mostly. Um, but what I'm saying is that when Jesus died, we, were, we are to count ourselves as having died with him. He died on the cross for our sins. And then our sins were reckoned there. We're the same as having died with him. And when he was raised, we're the same as having been risen with him. We're raised with him. In other words, if Jesus is living, if we put ourselves in the place where he has died for our sins as our substitute, we also put our place ourselves in the place where he's risen to justify us and now we're risen with him in newness of life. And baptism pictures this, by the way. So we have the picture of his death, burial, and resurrection and we have the reality of it. He has spiritually raised us up again. And what uh, if we would go ahead and say that he uh, has promised to raise us physically in, the, in view of the future glorification. Just as he's already raised us up spiritually, he's promised to raise us up physically at his coming. So he says he's begotten us again, we're already born again, unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That, that is a guarantee of our present spiritual resurrection and a promise of our future uh, bodily resurrection. Both of them are included. It embraces both our spiritual life now, the living hope, and our future resurrection at Christ's coming. And the resurrection of Christ guarantees both of these aspects to the believer. Someone says, well, I know I'm risen with Christ now. He died for my sins. He's raised me up, and I'm sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But do you also know that he's by the same token of his same resurrection, he's promised to raise us up again? Let me see if I can find in Corinthians if I can find it, that Jesus has promised to raise us up also. Well, I'll try to find it for you because it's a good verse. Because it says, uh, since Christ was crucified for us, he will raise us up again also by Christ. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, now listen, Verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us also by Jesus, that's future, and shall present us with you. You see, the very fact, it says, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus. In other words, by Christ's resurrection, he's going to raise us up also and shall present us with you. And so we're anticipating a future resurrection. Back in 1 Peter, you have your place there? Always keep a hand there. It says in verse 4, To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We're raised up to an incorruptible inheritance. Notice, it's undefiled. It fadeth not away, and it's reserved. Those are four wonderful things about our inheritance. 
you know, this corruptible body must put on incorruption. So as far as the bodily inheritance of the future. Close your place there a minute and, and I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible, right? And we shall be changed, for this corruptible body of ours must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on, on immortality. So we're not only going to have an inheritance in the future that's incorruptible as far as body is concerned, but everything that's connected with our future inheritance will not corrupt or decay, even including our heavenly bodies. Now everything is subject to rot and decay, isn't it? You take iron out here and rust gets in there and it eats it up and weakens it and it finally just comes apart. Even iron. Solid iron. Uh, you take... Uh, wood and it rots, doesn't it? Material things of this sort. And even our bodies are subject to corruption and decay. But he says everything in that eternal inheritance is incorruptible. Streets of gold. We're going to have the things of heaven. Our bodies themselves will be incorruptible. Not any longer subject to disease or decay or any fault, any weakness, any infirmities. If you read the rest of that in Corinthians, or the earlier part of that we read in the 15th chapter, it will tell you that this body is sown in, in dishonor, but it is raised in, in honor. It's sown in uh, weakness, but it will be raised in power. It's sown in a natural body when we're dying or buried, and it's raised a spiritual body. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in mortality. It's raised in immortality. We'll have the uh, perfect bodies. Look at this inheritance it's talking about. An undefiled, undefiled. God's city and people will be holy. They'll be undefiled. They will be out without any defilement, any sin, any fault, any failure. And that fadeth not away, that means that it will not wither, it will not die. And it says it's reserved in heaven for you. God has your sign, name on it. Your sign is there. This belongs to so-and-so. Your name's on that heavenly uh, house or home or mansion, if you want to so call it. Or heaven's glory and heaven's inheritance. Including your body, including your soul salvation, including the mansion that Jesus says, I'll go and prepare a place for you and I'll put your name there. And I'm going, there, there's many, many mansions and plenty of them there. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, John 14. So he said, I've got a place for you, and I've got your name on it. It's reserved for you. Now, if a saint didn't make it, if God has you a place reserved and you didn't make it, there would, there would be a lot of vacancy signs in heaven because he's already got your name on it. It's already reserved. Someone says, what does that mean? That means you're saved and you're secure because God says, I've already got your place for you. He expects you to move in someday. It's reserved in heaven for you. But you know the thing about an inheritance in heaven, God not only reserves the inheritance, we say, you know, you say this, listen, I want to give you something. If in this earthly life, let's come back to the earth. 
someone, father and mother says, now I've reserved a place over here. When I die, this is all going to be yours. This new, this house over here, this farm and this home place, it's all yours. And it's got your name on it. It belongs to you. Well, a lot of things can happen before that time comes you inherit. In fact, there may be a change of plans. There may be all kinds of intermarriages and the son or daughter that was to inherit, maybe uh, the father or mother gets married again and there's another one in the family and it all goes to that other side of the world. No one, you don't get anything. But God says, I've got this reserved for you. And he says, I'm going to keep you for it. I'm going to make sure you get it. I like that, don't you? You know, uh, when you have an inheritance in this life, you're not sure you'll get it. You may or you may not. If your father and mother and family prove to be true and they, they have taken care of their business properly and, and it's fixed up to where you'll receive your inheritance, when it comes, you, you feel rather confident because they're honest and true people that you will receive that. But maybe it won't be that way. But let's put it in the heavenly thing. God says that you are kept by the power of God through faith in the salvation, ready to be revealed in that last day. He's going to keep you for that inheritance. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That God not only keeps the inheritance for us, but that He keeps us for it. Suppose, coming back to the earth again, suppose you have this inheritance reserved for you, and you die before you receive it. Certainly you can't receive it if you die as a young child, or a young man, or a young person. It was yours, but you died. You didn't get to enjoy it. But here God says, I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you get sick. I'm not going to let anything happen to you where you won't get it. I'm going to keep you by my power, and I'm going to reserve it for you, and I'm going to reserve you for it. I like that. Because I stand sure to gain it. Okay? And then he says, wherein you greatly... Look in verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice. If this wouldn't cause someone to rejoice, I can't think of what would. Wherein you greatly rejoice because you're saved, because you're chosen of God, you sprinkle the blood of Christ by faith, you're begotten again into a living hope, you have an inheritance incorruptible, and God's going to keep you for it, wherein you greatly rejoice. Now, knowing this and understanding this will bring rejoicing. How happy God's people ought to be, and how miserable we are so much of the time. Quite a paradox, isn't it? Quite an opposite. Where, Peter says, wherein, because of all this, the wherein refers to all that we've been talking about. About our salvation in Christ. About the blood redemption in Christ. About being alive in Christ. About Christ dying for our sins. About God choosing us before the foundation of the world. About you and I being elect according to the full knowledge of God. About us having a living hope of now and the hereafter. About an inheritance. He says, hearing you greatly rejoice. If God's people cannot rejoice in those facts, I don't know what would make them happy. Peter didn't either. But he turns, now look in verse 6. Though now for a season. Now he says, let's look at the present. Though now. Now is the present. Someone says, if I've got all this laid up for me and I can be so happy, why am I so wrought with trial now? Uh, Peter says, well, it may be necessary. Look at this. Where you greatly rejoice? Though now for a season, if need be. Those are key words. A season, if need be. Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, trials, or testings. God says, while you're strangers and pilgrims, while you're here on this earth, you may have many trials and testings. 
Now that's the part we don't like. If we could just live in view of heaven every day and without any problems or trials and we say heaven's here and heaven's there, but heaven's not here yet. We can rejoice in the hope of it and the fact of it and the promise of it and the, the security of it but we're still here. And he says, now in this present, if need be, there's manifold temptations. Remember, Paul said that ye through much tribulation should enter into the kingdom of God. And so now it may need to be in order to try us and test our faith. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, your faith is going to be tested. Being, what is the trial of your faith? It is much more precious than a gold that perishes. The trial of your faith, you'd say, I'd rather have the gold. But God says that the, the trial is greater than the gold. When your faith is tested, it's greater than gold. Someone says, I'd like to have a, a big block of gold. You know, it's six, five, six hundred dollars an ounce. And you have a bar of gold. Several hundred dollars, uh, several thousand dollars. And you have some thousands of dollars. Maybe several bars of gold. But it says gold that perishes. But the trial of your faith is more precious. More, the word precious means more valuable. It's more valuable. The value is far greater than of gold that perishes. Now look. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The reward of it is in the future. The trial is now, but the reward is at the appearing of Christ. Have you ever heard people complaining about all the trials of life? God's just stacking up gold bars, better than gold bars for you in the future. That's what he's doing. He's stacking them up. You say, I had a real trial in this situation. It was sure a testing of my faith. God says, well, that's another big gold bar, and I'm just stacking them up. And at the appearing of Christ, you're going to receive that reward and that uh, value that's more precious than of gold that would have perished. He says, I'm going to have all this gold and rewards for you in heaven. Not literal, of course, I'm talking about. Talking about the spiritual joy and blessings in heaven are greater than the gold as far as value is concerned. And it will happen at the appearing of Christ. Look, in verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, you haven't seen Christ, but you love him. He first loved you. In whom though now you see him not, yet believing, you have faith in him, right, believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Right now we get a we get a miniature or a preview or we might say an initial uh, an initiation maybe of that glory or what would we call it a sample of it. Let's try to put it that way. Right now. And we can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory by faith. In believing. See? It says in believing. And believing in him whom we've not seen, but yet we love him, though we see him not. Yet in believing, we can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We talked, we preached on the blessednesses of, of the child of God this morning. Remember? Jesus, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that the meek. Blessed are, are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so on and so forth. But here is a blessing too, isn't it? Here's the, here is the blessing and the happiness of a believer in Jesus Christ that he can have here and now. 
If you cannot be happy, now let's go back and rehearse it. If you cannot be happy knowing that God chose you, knowing that uh, He was in your thoughts before the council halls of eternity, knowing that He provided for your salvation, and you obeyed and you sprinkled the blood of Christ, and it brought you salvation, and you were dead with Christ and risen again, and you're risen into newness of life now, you have a living hope hereafter, you have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, that faded not away, it's got your name on it, and you're reserved for it, and you're kept by His power, and though now for a season you may be tried, yet all of this is yours in the future, now you ought to rejoice with joy and be full of that joy and happiness, and that ought to make a Christian happy. It just seems to me that Peter's pointing out some things that ought to make us happy. Well, then how do we live such downgraded lives? I know we all have trials and we all have sorrows. We all have sicknesses. We all have problems. But in the midst of all that, deep down underneath, everyone else can be happy. This world is temporal. This body is temporal. The sufferings are just for a time. Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's Romans chapter 8. And he says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last verses, he says, For our light affliction, he calls the afflictions of this life light or weightless, without very much weight. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, he considers this life and time as just a moment of time, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight, see, weight instead of life, of eternal glory instead of this temporary time, the eternal glory. While we look not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. He says the things which are seen are temporal. Everything you see, including this body, is all temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And God has those laid up for us. And we only sometimes look at the things which are seen. And I believe that Christians need to get their minds and thoughts somewhat off of material and temporal things. We need to embrace heavenly and spiritual and eternal things. I know that temporal uh, things are necessary for this temporal life. And I know that we need uh, food and clothing and shelter and money to buy food and we need to pay our bills and all of this is involved. But let not that be the whole of your life. Let it be of a spiritual nature and spiritual goals and looking to the future life with God. And you know when we place... I'm going to try to give you something at this time. Look, when we place all the value on the temple things, we seem to be saying to ourselves and to others, this is all that counts. We seem to be saying we don't believe we've got anything afterwards by our action in the way we are. We seem to be telling the world we believe just like you do. We've got to have all this or we have nothing. Did you know that's the message that goes out? When you and I act like that, we act just like the man that has no faith in the future. We say, this, this world is all I'm going to get out of it, so I'll get all of, I, all of it that I can and enjoy all of it I can. You ought to enjoy what God gives you. There's no question about that. But you ought not to think that's all of it. Because... Just as sure as Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, he says, I'm coming again, and I will receive you into myself, that where I am there you may be also. Look at this again now. He says in verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. And he's not only talking about souls. Notice it's not 
the salvation of your soul, but your souls. Not to exclude the salvation of our body included in the full and complete salvation that will be ours. See, he's talking about not only soul salvation, our soul is already saved, but our whole being will be saved at the coming of Christ. We're waiting for the final complete redemption of our body, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans chapter 8. We do wit to wait for the redemption of the body at the coming of Christ. You see, until this body is glorified, we're not fully and completely saved. You say, well, I thought I was already saved. You are saved as far as your salvation in Christ from the penalty of sin right here and now and just as saved as you will ever be. But you're not saved as to the body. We're still going to die, aren't we? And the, the body has to, to still face some trouble, troublous times. And we're looking for a complete deliverance so that one day we'll have a glorified body and we'll be like the Lord Jesus in glory. We shall see Him as He is. Now look, verse 10. Of which salvation the prophet, look at that, have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Boy, in those two verses there's no telling how much you could see. The prophets foreknew of this salvation. They prophesied of this salvation. They inquired into it and they searched diligently. Did you know many of the prophets, though they gave us the time and place of the birth of Christ and spoke of it, well, look at it. Moses prophesied in Genesis 3, verse 15. He said that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, right? Christ is the promised seed that would redeem us. And he would bruise Satan under his feet. All right, look. as the prophecy of Christ. You think Moses understood all that? He prophesied it. And he searched diligently as to what manner of time. When is this all going to happen? He knew there was something in it of the future. He knew there was a time that the devil that had caused so much trouble would be put underfoot. All right. Think of Micah says, And thou Bethlehem of Judea art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor, be ruler in Israel. And he will be the Savior, and he will... His goings forth, now that babe laid in Bethlehem's manger, whose goings forth had been from the days of eternity that Christ would come from God and be born in a stable and laid in a manger. But you think Micah understood all that? He knew that God says, now you tell everybody that Christ is going to come, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He formed the place of his birth. And the one that's born... His goings forth have been from the days of eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In other words, He's going to be God manifest in the flesh. But He's going to be born as a baby. And He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so when the wise men were seeking to find the place of the birth of Christ, and you know, Herod said, went out to the scribes, and he says, Where is it that Christ was to be born? And they said, Bethlehem is where it's to, to be born. They searched the Scriptures. They found Micah 5, verse 2. They said, that's where he's going to be born. And so that's where they went, didn't they? Why? Because they, this prophet that Micah, this prophecy that Micah gave, though maybe he didn't fully understand it, he was searching what or what manner of time it would be fulfilled. It was the salvation that all these prophets... Look at Isaiah 53. He prophesied, he says... Uh, He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's despised and rejected of men. 
says the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, he goes on and speaks of the sufferings of Christ, led as a lamb to the slaughter, and his sheep before shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Speaks of his humiliation. He speaks of this fact that he was uh, bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. And he tells of the sufferings of Christ some 700 years before it ever happened. Aren't you sure that Isaiah had some problems dealing with that? He believed it. He wrote it. And how much of it he understood, we don't know. We're not proper. We cannot be proper to evaluate how much was really real to him or how much he just wrote down what God said. But it says here that they were they uh, of which salvation. Look at this verse again. The prophets had inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. They knew it was coming and they knew how it would come through Christ. And they prophesied of it. Searching what or what manner of time they didn't know the Spirit of Christ which was in them. They had the Spirit of Christ in them even in the Old Testament days to prophesy of His coming. The Spirit of Christ was already in them. Look, uh, which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand. Look at that. All of it's there. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. They spoke of His sufferings in this world. They spoke of the glory that would be His in the hereafter of the future. But how much did they understand? So what we're saying here is that this plan of salvation and blood redemption even was mysterious to the prophets. It had a meaning to them, but it was mysterious to them, and it was unfulfilled until the time of the apostles. Now notice, we'll get down to the apostles and then the angels, and then we'll let you go. Look at the apostles. In the next verse, under whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, not to the prophets themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have uh, preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Look at that. Let's stop there a moment. In other words, the Holy Spirit came on the day of, the Pen of Pentecost. The church was sent out to carry this good news that the prophets had previously announced. The lost world, the apostles were endued with power to preach the gospel, and they preached the Holy Ghost, they preached the uh, gospel through the Holy Spirit that was sent down upon them uh, from heaven. And then it says, and I'll close with this thought, which things the angels desire to look into. Look at that. The angels then decide to see that God has, through the prophets, spoken of so great a salvation. The angels then decide to see what the apostles did in their days and what, people, what the church is doing today as far as the salvation of men is concerned. Which things, you know what it really means when it says, which things the angels uh, desire to look into? It means they bend aside from heaven's glory down to this earth, into the churches, and into the ministry of the, of the Word of God and how it brings salvation to the believing, repentant sinner. And they stand in awe and in wonder at what God is doing with these human beings down upon this earth. Just like they look down in curiosity. Let me give you a verse of Scripture, and this will close. In Ephesians chapter 2, no, 3, Ephesians 3, and Paul is speaking of the mystery of the gospel being preached even to the Gentiles, and that's the subject. 